special episode of the third impact anime podcast this is part of a new series covering the book that's just come out by helen mccarthy and darren john ashmore about the life and work of leiji matsumoto and we have two of the contributors with us here today i have tim eldridge and i have ed hoff tim is a writer and artist who has worked on a wide array of animated series such as the uh the batman jackie chan adventure spider-man avengers symbol uh, if you are someone of my general age, you've probably watched at least one thing that he has done storyboards on. And he's also done comic books such as Robotech. He had his own graphic novel, Grease Monkey, that came out in 2007. And of course, he's worked on the Captain Harlock and Star Blazers, a.k.a. Yamato uh, comics here in the state. Uh, he also runs Cosmo DNA, which is the research for Star Blazers slash Yamato information and archives. It's a... A uh, huge part of the sort of Matsumoto fandom if you're, again, someone in the Anglophone world. So, Tim, glad to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm happy to be anywhere. <laughs> I think, oh, God, remember when we could be places? Um, <laughs> and then Ed Hoff, he is originally from Vancouver, Canada, but he currently lives in Japan. He has organized the World Cosplay Summit since his inception in 2003 and has conducted his doctoral studies at Nagoya University on the global popularization of cosplay. He's currently a lecturer at Tokyo Dinky University, and he hosts the Mechadamia Academic Conference when it's in Japan and also works on the steering committee. So, Ed, we're happy to have you on as well. It's a pleasure to be here. So the reason that we have both of you on today is both of you have written chapters and contributed to the Matsumoto book. Uh, Tim, your chapter is even better than the real thing, Matsumoto's manga. And Ed, your chapter is the impact of Matsumoto Leiji's universe on anime magazines as a platform for cosplay. And I'm glad to have both of you on because you actually sort of reference each other in both of your chapters. And your work, have, work, your work has considerable overlap. Uh, to the topic. So I'm going to start with Tim because you've worked on the official uh, Star Blazers and Harlock comics. How did you get into Matsumoto's work? Um, I probably followed the same path as just about everybody in my generation, uh, which started watching anime in the early to mid 80s. Uh, Star Blazers was my gateway, my gateway drug. I I have to call it a drug because that's what it's become into the world of space battleship Yamato. And then the world, the broad world of uh, anime and manga that it's a part of. And um, I think Leiji Matsumoto was the first actual creator whose name I learned as a result of pursuing my interests um, because he played such a major role in making that show what it was. Uh, he was not there at the very beginning of the production. He was a uh, co-creator, uh, but his contributions were all solid gold. He became the MVP very quickly uh, because he, unlike the others, had a very 
long and respected history already of creating visual science fiction. And it was enormously appealing to watch his uh, concepts come to life on TV. And so, uh, like many of us, the very next thing we uh, explored was Captain Harlock, because it had so much of the same DNA as Yamato. And uh, right after that would come Galaxy Express. And then in the, the process of digging up data on those three things, we inevitably became exposed to uh, the entire uh, sweep of anime and manga, all of which had some connection because it was it was all of uh, the same uh, atmosphere, the same uh, cultural influence, and um, it just naturally created a, a conduit for everything to come flowing into our minds. And the deeper you dug, the more you found. Uh, and especially with Matsumoto's history, the thing that I observed very early on was that a Matsumoto anime looked very different from a Matsumoto manga. Uh, there was a very broad range of expression between the two, and you could spend your entire life exploring that range. Ed, would you say that you had a sort of similar uh, interaction with the work when you started? Was it sort of a gateway drug for you, or did you find your way to Matsumoto in a different way? Absolutely. It's, it's uh, uh, interesting hearing uh, from Tim that that uh, gateway drug aspect of it, because it really was for me uh, as well. Um, Starblazers was, I don't know, it was just something different that was on TV for me. I, I might be a couple years younger than than uh, than Tim, uh, and being from Canada, um, I uh, encountered Starblazers on television. I think it was 1983-84. I was uh, eight or nine years old uh, at the time, and I just remember, you know, sneaking downstairs eight o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, to uh, you know watch TV and and. Uh, watch this this new TV series about this uh, amazing space adventure traveling through the solar system, traveling from planet to planet with uh, these strange blue alien enemies and and uh, and that and uh, I remember suddenly the story being gone. And I didn't really understand at the time that this was a series. This wasn't like, uh, Bugs Bunny or Tom and Jerry, where you're endlessly watching the same uh, uh, cartoons over and over again. Uh, this was a, a story that had a start and a finish. And I just remember at that time sort of flipping through the channels. And I think um, Robotech uh, was on as well. I, I believe uh, Captain Harlock was on as well. But it was really Star Blazers that, that, uh, that hooked me, that, that, that traveling through space uh, aspect of it and, and um, the, the story be, behind it. So, um, uh, yeah, it really was uh, the start for me there. One thing that strikes me whenever I speak to any anime fan of any generation is how common the story of it's different than what I was seeing on TV pops up. Uh, in Helen's case, when we spoke to her uh, earlier in the year, she mentions it was just different than the comics that she was reading. But uh, my, friend's Lawrence, my friend Lawrence Ng mentions like, oh, I saw Robotech and it was so different than what we were seeing on TV. And you guys mentioned that uh, Star Blazers was just something so different. And even now, like people who are younger than me, which is a terrifying thing to, to contemplate at this point, uh, they, they say the thing that gets them in the anime is it's, it was different than what they were seeing. And I feel like that, that element of 
of being something that kind of comes from somewhere unknown is sort of a, a driving force into why people get into anime fandom and then become so passionate about it and want to learn everything and begin archiving material or uh, developing these sort of fan communities around something. Yeah, I do become curators uh, because the, there's a ton of information to be organized and, uh, and repackaged. It, it all has to be uh, pulled very carefully through the language barrier. And then we all need to uh, come to our own understanding of what is fact and what is guesswork. And um, for decades, we sorted through all of that to create what we now know as anime fandom. Uh, by the way, before we drift away from Star Blazers into the, the bigger Matsumoto topic, uh, I would like to digress for a moment and mention that uh, I heard some kind of sad news today. Uh, the uh, Are either of you familiar with the name Amy Howard Wilson? I am, as of today, I saw the news as well. Yeah, okay. Uh, we lost Amy Howard Wilson back on February 28th, and the news was made public today on Facebook. Uh, in case that name doesn't ring a bell, she was the voice of arguably the most popular character in Star Blazers, that being Nova. And uh, she was also uh, the first and only uh, member of that cast to actually integrate with anime fandom. Uh, back in the late 90s, she began appearing regularly at conventions, mainly Anime Weekend Atlanta, and she found instant family there in all of us, and she found a husband in our ranks, and uh, only today, after spending uh, a lot of time with her over the years, did I find this out myself. So I just want to throw out a Star Blazer salute to our dear Nova. Godspeed. Yeah, uh, it's. Um, I just think of of um, uh, the many losses that we've had uh, during during this year. It's it's uh, it's really tough. You know, uh, we we have to uh, 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 make sure that we point out that you know it's uh, during the pandemic that we are recording the uh, uh, our discussion, and uh, it's always tough when when we lose. Uh, close friends in the community or uh, uh, other academics as well. I, I have um, uh, a good friend uh, who um, I, I went to uh, uh, postgraduate studies with. Um, uh, she's a professor in Indonesia. And uh, we did a, a, a talk on pop culture and democracy last, uh, last year with her students in Indonesia and, and uh, she passed away a couple weeks ago. So my, my thoughts are drawn to that. And it's, uh, it's a tough time, but we have to, uh, all we can do is keep moving forward and, and uh, keep their, their uh, memories in mind and, and continue their legacies and, and uh, um, tell their stories uh, about who they were and how, how great uh, uh, people they were. Tim, I didn't have time to read anything other than the headline. Did it mention if if the pandemic was part of the cause of her passing, or was it uh, something else? All that was said about it is that she went peaceful. <clears throat> so I'm thankful for that. That's probably the most important thing right now. Yeah. So 
I am sorry. I, I am not as versed in Star Blazers or Yamato. This book has actually been, I think, as Helen has mentioned, she wanted to be a sort of a, a gatewey for other people. And it's, it, uh, Matsumoto is sort of a blind spot in my own uh, anime knowledge. So I, I feel... I feel for the people in the fandom who've lost her and her friends and her family. I saw that and I was like, wow, I'm recording this tonight. And that's not really a good thing to go in on. <laughs> well, another interesting aspect of being a, uh, a Leiji Matsumoto fan of our generation, uh, speaking for Ed and myself, is that uh, by its very nature, you end up sort of being a father figure or in some cases, a grandfather figure to other fans. And uh, you sort of have this this uh, subliminal urge to sit everybody down around a campfire and tell stories about uh, about uh, how you first met up with uh, with Leiji, you know, how you first encountered his work and how it affected you and and all the wonders that uh, you little kids can now take for granted because they're so freely available to you. Um, I'm sure uh, Ed can also tell stories about how difficult it was to find anything back in the 80s and how deep you had to dig for it, but also, as a result, how rewarding it was to find something. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I filled that space uh, with uh, Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I had an Atari, I had a Pong system when I was a kid, so I, I was really involved in you know comics and and uh uh lots of other uh, geeky related uh uh topics but bringing things back to one one uh uh point we mentioned before about uh that realization of what uh you know Leiji Matsumoto's works were or what anime was at the time uh I didn't have any uh understanding at the time of of what that was it wasn't only until i got to japan that i really had a, an opportunity to think back about those moments uh, as a child and, and really see okay well this was actual uh a product that comes from japan leiji matsumoto is is this massive personality here i didn't really realize how uh, large a character he is until i had that perspective and that opportunity to compare them and i think that's something that that we have also as we grow and we go to conventions and we meet other people we really realize that uh you know this is this is something that's a lot bigger than than uh, than what we what we realized as as youth as as kids we just enjoyed it purely in, enjoyed it for what it was and 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 the the story was was uh, captivating and 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 fascinating. It's only uh, later on in life that we can really appreciate that. I think that that uh, connects with what Tim's saying about telling stories and 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 relaying that to. Uh, uh, to others as well. Um, I think it also speaks to Star Blazers as as uh, as a storyliner. Leiji Matsumoto's works in, in creating a, a, a world um, with so much connective tissue with, within it. Uh, so uh, it's it's you know it's it's a pleasure to be on on board the project and to be uh, to be helping out uh, in that way.
for both of you, how did it go in working on this book? How how were you approached, and what was your sort of idea of how you contribute? Well, I've been a friend of uh, Helen McCarthy's for many, many years. We go back to just about the same starting point in all of this. And, uh, uh, of course, she's been uh, keeping up with my work as I've kept up with hers. And so she knew immediately that she could call upon me to contribute a chapter to the book because I'd already translated many, many different uh, interviews with Matsumoto uh, for my website, uh, Cosmo DNA. <clears throat> And so the tricky part was just deciding what to write about. Uh, she was mainly interested in an account of how Matsumoto fandom developed in America and how it affected us. And so I sort of started with that as a germ of an idea, um, but then quickly realized that it could be more interesting and more uh, in-depth if I explored it from my own uh, approach as someone who interpreted his work rather than just collected it. Uh, and that came in the form of the Captain Harlock and Star Blazers comic books, where uh, I had to absorb the actual visual material that was designed for the anime and redraw it myself, staying loyal to it, understanding what made it work, uh, finding the structure uh, beneath all of the individual elements and then reproducing them in a new form uh, for American readers. And in doing that, I sort of uh, discovered what it was like for so many other artists in Japan to do exactly the same thing. As I said, there's a broad uh, range between Matsumoto's manga and Matsumoto's anime. And that's because many, many more people were responsible for drawing the anime. And so his work had to be synthesized into a new form that they could reproduce. And I, I realized very soon in the process that uh, examining, analyzing, and describing that synthesis was an aspect of uh, Matsumoto's career that nobody really touched on yet. And so once I keyed in on that, uh, I was off and running. I find it very interesting in your chapter how you you put it in the terms of frames and framing and that uh, Matsumoto is not, in a way, not really even a pure substance that we can sort of study because he worked with so many assistants and his designs were sort of tweaked by so many different character designers specifically to make them uh, translatable to television and then those designs are sort of taken by a broader culture. I think you, you mentioned in your chapter also how a Harlock-esque character ends up in a Star Wars comic in America and in a way that is another frame. It is the sort of regurgitation of a design of a design of a design that there is really no true Matsumoto because it just becomes part of the cultural ether. Right, it's a, uh, it's a concept, it's a body of work. Uh, but it needs an originator, and everything that comes out of that body of work can be traced back to that original uh, genetic pattern that only he could have created. Uh, so part of the process of, of being a Matsumoto fan is teasing out what he actually drew from what was interpreted. Uh, you know, his pure creation as opposed to a version of his creation. Um, but I think it's fascinating. I, I can't think of any other artist on earth uh, 
uh, who has been the progenitor of a process like that? Yeah, your your uh, your section on um, uh, discussing Leiji Matsumoto's work is is uh, one thing that I found really interesting was was that that's that Star Wars connection. I believe um, uh, Darren also uh, mentioned, or it's mentioned again in, in the book, but it's it's a fascinating part of things. One thing that I wanted to ask was um, your uh, you discuss anime and, and manga uh, in great depth and the framing of uh, of, of uh, the manga and, and uh, the uh, the unique aspects that uh, uh, Leiji Matsumoto brings out with the framing of of his manga. It, it shows. Uh, a lot of experience in in uh, in that, and I was wondering if you could uh, touch on that and and how how Leiji Matsumoto's uh, layout of the manga was different from others uh, during that time. You're talking about things like page composition. Yeah, and the layout and the the the, the look of the images and the use of black and and white. Mm -hmm. Well, every artist approaches that a little bit differently. Um, Jack Kirby had his methods. Uh, Will Eisner had his methods. Um, Katsuhiro Otomo has his methods, you know, to to flip it over to the Japan side. Leiji Matsumoto has his. Um, the the comic book uh, and manga toolkit is massive, and everybody uses tools in their own way. Um, one of the things I noticed early on with a uh, Matsumoto manga is uh, it became very common for him to construct a page with horizontal panels running from top to bottom. So each one was kind of a, a strip. And um, I think in some cases when you're creating manga very quickly, you fall back on just a handful of uh, page layout styles. I know I do. There's some that I just naturally gravitate toward. And if you use them often enough, you you learn how to manipulate them for specific effects. Um, the act of composing a comic book page is like creating uh, a mural. And the job is to direct the eye of the reader uh, in specific directions at a specific pace. And so where you choose to place an image and how you choose to, a shape for a frame and where you position a word balloon in relation to another word balloon is all part of that craft. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think one of the most unique parts of Leiji Matsumoto's approach to that craft was his use of those horizontal strips of panels. Um, Sometimes they would be a solid white background, sometimes a solid black background. Often the uh, the goal was to center a character and put dialogue on either side. Um, he just found all uh, many, many ways of, of using that uh, composition. And um, I don't know that I can go any deeper than that in describing it, but uh, it's just something that was unique to him and that stood out to me compared to the works of others. Um, there's also a, a difficult uh, translation when uh, manga travels horizontally and vertically because uh, text is read in both directions in Japanese. I'm sure, Ed, you know this far better than I do. Uh, 
Um, so there are additional tricks that we don't have to do in, in American comics that prevent a reader in Japan from accidentally reading things vertically. Uh, there, are, there are visible uh, breaks and gaps and bars that are built into a page layout uh, that uh, become another part of that toolkit. It's very fascinating. Interesting, the, the, the drawing of the eye or the drawing of the uh, uh, the beholder through through the mangas is uh, um, something that 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 uh, I encounter with uh, through manga studies uh, in, uh, in um, you know, academic presentations, etc. My own studies are more cultural studies, uh, anthropological uh, studies of people and 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 uh, uh, the, the things that we do as, as uh, cultures and in societies. But one thing that I've always found fascinating with manga is, is the analysis of the, the simple frame. I mean, we say it's simple, but it's, there's so much value or meaning put into that in, in moving the eye across the page in ways that maybe we don't even think about. It's, it's a subconscious uh, sort of thing, almost like um, in, in my uh, uh, fine arts class in university um, with, uh, you know, images of, of uh, uh, by, you know, Picasso or Michelangelo and the triangulation of the figure within, within the, uh, the, the classic image or, or the drawing of, of, of the, uh, the viewer towards, uh, towards light or different parts of, of a painting in the same way manga will draw your, your, uh, your eyes across. It's interesting uh, that you mentioned the difference between uh, Japanese and English as well, because obviously that becomes difficult in, tra in translation, where the artist is trying to pull your eyes one direction, but you're going to be reading in a different direction, then you're going to have a, a conflict in, in, in that sense. So how to overcome that as a translator? Uh, maybe Zach uh, Davison and, and his work in translation might be able to answer that. Uh, yeah. uh, but uh, it's very interesting with uh, that, that manga aspect of things. Yeah, and another thing that I noticed specifically about Matsumoto manga is there's a lot of empty space. And uh, there are very specific practical reasons for that. One of which is that if you are generating a lot of manga very quickly, uh, you can um, ensure that you meet your deadline by drawing fewer actual panels. Um, so if he had to crank out you know, 25 pages a week, obviously he didn't want to task himself with having to fill every square inch with detail. Um, and so it became more practical sometimes to leave a big open area uh, in a in a page uh, composition, or to fill up an entire page with one image, which was uh, something he did a lot, much more so than you can do in an American comic, because uh, it's naturally expected that you're going to cram as much story and art into one of those as possible. Uh, and that's just driven by economics. Uh, manga has much greater readership per capita. And so uh, once you have a steady manga gig, you're less likely to lose it than you are an American comic book uh, gig. So you can loosen it up a little bit. Um, you're, you're not required to jam in as much information as you can just for the sake of uh, trying to sell the next book. Um, and so when you have the option of slowing down your pace and opening up your compositions, it, it can become 
much more artistic uh, and much more meditative. And I think that's something he's always been particularly good at. I know in your chapter, you also mentioned that the way he uses line, that Matsumoto loves to use uh, incomplete, uh, unconnected line to sort of suggest images and and ideas and use negative space and the, the, the spared use of line to kind of give the impression of something and allow this sort of relationship between him as the artist and you as the, the reader and the interpreter to kind of meet in the middle and, and form your own imaginary, your sort of vision of what his world looks like halfway with him. Yeah, I think part of the reason techniques like that develop is because when you, uh, when you draw your entire life, you want to keep it interesting, you want to evolve, you want to find uh, new shortcuts and new paths and new means of expression. So if you look at a Masumoto manga from the early 60s, for example, you don't see that at all. Um, back in those days, his, uh, his standards were Osama Tezuka and Walt Disney. And he wanted to be an animator more than he wanted to be a manga artist. And so he drew like an animator. Um, and characters were fully rounded and fully closed out. And, and uh, it would have been, ironically, much easier to interpret had the those manga gone to anime but it was too early for that um but by the time he gets to the 70s he's worked through all of that and he wants to uh express himself differently and he wants to find new ways to render his characters and one of those ways was to uh, develop this uh, this what i call a broken brush technique where you trace a line all around uh the outline of a character but that line is not fully closed. It's not fully connected. It has specific breaks in it. And uh, uh, perfecting that technique meant uh, deciding for himself, where is it appropriate to break a line? And uh, if I leave this part out, am I providing enough information for a reader to connect it uh, emotionally or subliminally? And in that way, it becomes a way of, of making the reader part of the process of interpreting the art. And it becomes even more personal. chapter focuses on uh, anime magazines in Japan specifically and even more specifically on cosplay. The sort of relationship that anime fandoms across countries have with cosplay is always something that feels like it's ebbing and flowing and, and uh, shifting and changing and I find the way you track those changes specifically by highlighting fans of Matsumoto's who who will cosplay his characters. How did you go into developing this chapter? Well, initially, uh, I should say that that uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, much junior to uh, to Tim and to be on board with, uh, uh, you know, Helen McCarthy and, and uh, Darren Ashmore. It's 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 a great honor, um, you know, just just hearing Tim talk about many years of, of uh, his activities. Looking at his uh, his his uh, his web page uh, uh, here, he has uh, 
you know, uh, the Tim DB, which uh, uh, documents his history, history from birth in 1965 onwards, and everything that uh, uh, that he's been uh, involved in is is. Um, it's, oh, you're looking at my archival site. Yeah, that's a newer one. It's at timeld.com if anybody art, would like to check it out. Um, yeah, uh, you know, so it's it's uh, it's it's an honor in in that way. And when it was Darren uh, uh, Ashmore who, who um, uh, I think in in, in nineteen uh, or uh, two thousand seventeen, uh, I went to a conference at uh, at his uh, university, Yamanashi Gakuin University. I believe I met Helen for the first time there, although of course I've heard of her name for so many years before that. And uh, I was invited on board to be uh, the project to uh, to write one of the chapters at that time, or or it was well, it was after that, but uh, it was through that um, that meeting. And yeah, I was I was thinking, well, what can I bring to the table? Um, uh, how how can I uh, fill out you know the story of Leiji Matsumoto, or or, or provide uh, an essay about him? And I went down to the. Um, uh, the uh, Yoshihiro Yonezawa Memorial Library, which is uh, Yoshihiro Yonezawa was the creator of Comic Market, uh, one of the oldest um, sort of cons, or it's a doujinshi, it's a fanzine convention in Japan, uh, world famous. And he was the, uh, the, the first CEO, passed away, unfortunately, a, a few years back. But there is a, a, uh, a memorial library to him through Meiji University. And they have a vast collection of, of manga and, and uh, uh, they've got uh, doujinshi uh, uh, fanzines, and they also have a vast collection of uh, anime magazines. And I went went down there and started going through uh, through those, and and really found that um, uh, through that, and also in discussions with uh, Sayu Shijima, who I who I do uh, uh, mention in in uh, in my article, uh, he's one of the first cosplay organizers for Comic Market. Um, that uh, you know, these anime magazines really were not just um, kind of the first uh, uh, iterations of uh, community-based interaction between fans within Japan, but also you know a, a place where uh, Leiji Matsumoto's works and other works were really introduced to uh, a wider audience. Um, uh, I think of, of uh, when I was young. With Dungeons and Dragons, we had um, there's the Dragon Magazine, which is kind of the same sort of thing. There's young, you know, me in elementary school flipping through this magazine, looking at uh, you know these uh, Dragon Con in in uh, Georgia, this faraway place, four thousand kilometers, three thousand miles away, which you know I'm never going to get to go at, at twelve years old, or Minnesota, and and these great characters, Gary Gygax. I just imagine the same sort of thing with anime magazines within Japan, kind of bringing youth together and exposing uh, uh, people to, you know, otaku culture, or uh, as Tim mentions in, in his section, the maniac culture. Before there was the word otaku, it was uh, uh, the, the, the word maniac, um, I guess. But, um, you know, sort of exposing youth uh, to that and also exposing youth to, to costuming. Uh, cosplay, seeing images of other young people dressing up as characters I mean, we are animals in, 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 in so many ways. We are 
uh, akin to, uh, you know, monkeys. Monkey see, monkey do. Uh, when we see someone doing something that looks like a lot of fun, hey, let's give it a try. Oh, that anime looks really interesting. I want to see that. When we see that and we have that that ability to to uh, tangibly uh, visualize something or touch uh, something in, in, in that way, it it, uh, it moves us and inspires us. And really, it's it's, you know, the, the, the growth of, of community in, in that way. In my chapter, I also look at uh, the growth of magazines in, in Japan and the inspiration from the United States post-World War II in the 1960s and 1970s and the growth of, of uh, you know, magazines like um, there's Takarajima, there's Bikuri House, um, these kind of cultural magazines that started to grow in, in, in the U.S., not just like Time magazine talking about news or, or, or cultural issues, but uh, pop culture youth culture, subculture, uh, you know, the hippie movement in, in uh, California. I know there's one uh, uh, one big magazine on uh, the West Coast that was very influential. The name's not coming to me right now, but that was brought to Japan. And um, there was a, a lot of um, uh, magazines that that uh, came out from that. And for uh, anime and, and, and manga, uh, at the time there was, in the mid-70s, there was magazines such as uh, uh, Out, or Animec, or or uh, later on Fan Road and uh, Animage that uh, developed, and and uh, the first iteration of those anime magazines was uh, brought out by industry, and they were sort of promoting their own product. But it was Fan Road and and uh, Animage that really brought out the the uh, uh, the fan community uh, had letters that were being sent in. Uh, and fans talking to each other, saying, oh, I participated in this event. We had a lot of fun. This is our club. If you're interested in joining our club, send us a message, uh, a message here. So it's really these, you know, anime magazines that um, was the first uh, beginnings of this growth of community. Nowadays, we have the Internet, and, and, and there's so many forums and different groups that we can uh, communicate with instantaneously. But, you know, 30, 40 years ago, it really was these magazines that started bringing community together, started uh, bringing otaku together, uh, cosplayers as well. And it was really through Leiji Matsumoto's work, which created the first boom of costuming, cosplay uh, in Japan. And I went through a lot of the magazines and I, I, I uh, uh, found some, some really uh, great photos and included them in, in the, the chapter. Just youth having fun, you know, 15-year-olds dressed up as as uh, the characters from Star Blazers and 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 reenacting different scenes and and uh, that it's all black and white and it's it's uh, it's all there. So that really was what brought things together for uh, for my own chapter there. When you when you mentioned at the start of the chapter the other magazines that were popular and sort of you grouped them into cultural magazines, subcultural magazines. Um, and then when you go into talking about early anime magazines and how some of them really do kind of uh, spring from these genre film science fiction magazines, I really was thinking about how there has been a lot of discussion lately about things like Fangoria and Famous Monsters of Filmland in, you know, America and and England and Canada and basically the Anglophone world, how they sort of help form these uh, nascent youth identities of like sort of proto-geek, but the, the the kids who were into monsters and robots and stuff. And I, I couldn't help but think about that same thing when reading your chapter about how 
these are sort of the pro, it is the proto even maniac. It's before even that is these early ideas of what does it mean to be into these things and these things getting their own magazine and, uh, you know, Matsumoto work being in the same pages as something that's going to be talking about Forbidden Planet and developing these ideas of who you are through a publication, but also the sort of in-group you mentioned, you know, the people posting these photos are other people like you, and they're not coming directly from a publishing house, which gives it this sort of uh, colleague feel that you're reading from people like you, as opposed to what a maybe what a fashion magazine is not someone like you, but someone who you want to be like. Um, it really was that... that um... Uh, change from straight promotional magazines into fan community uh, magazines, but also uh, it, it's very interesting to trace that 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 development through the '70s of um, kind of pop culture magazines into science fiction and kind of introducing uh, you know the world of science fiction movies and 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 the like. And then the introduction of, of anime, the comparison of anime to uh, science fiction. The uh, Out magazine is, is one of the earliest uh, geek-related uh, 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 publications. The first few, first year or two is strictly science fiction. And then it starts introducing anime. And then it starts comparing. And then it uh, kind of develops from there. And then it becomes uh, primarily uh, anime. So there's a, kind of a, a shift there. Another interesting aspect is, is the, 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 the look uh, or the, the uh, perspective on Western movies, such as Star Wars, uh, from Japan. And the impact that it had uh, on Japan. Uh, we, we discussed earlier that, that uh, uh, influence of, of uh, uh, you know, Star Blazers on uh, uh, on on Star Wars, I think there was a, a conversation there, or a communication there. Uh, there. Star Wars was very influential on on Japan as well, and to see that perspective on things, or or uh, ET and the extraterrestrial, the the uh, the shonen uh, perspective, the the uh, the beautiful boy uh, perspective of of uh, the main character in, in E.T. and the extraterrestrial. I, I, I never really looked at, at, uh, the main character in, in E.T. as, you know, such a, a, a beautiful boy, but from the Japanese eye, the Japanese perspective and relating that to, to, uh, uh, you know, popular, uh, manga and anime at the time, um, see the, the, uh, the characters in a different way. And you really see that in, in the, uh, the anime magazines uh, of the time. So it's, uh, it's really interesting comparing that to my own uh, upbringing and, and what, what uh, I saw through Western uh, culture, again, through Japanese culture in the uh, anime magazines. Whenever I talk to people, again, who are slightly younger than me, and I hate to even contemplate that, uh, there seems to be this idea that that Japan is this impenetrable wall, that that nothing that is made in other countries ever reaches Japan. And whenever they find out that people in Japan know who Batman is, or they watch uh, the movies, I think it's, we are so used in the West to this idea of we are the producers of media and anything else is some fluke that we don't really think of things going the other way. I actually showed two of my friends Phantom of the Paradise a few days ago, which is one of my favorite movies. And I told them, it's like, do you know the number of anime and manga that has looked at Winslow Leach's mask and then copied it over and over and over because it was such a, a cult hit in Japan? And people are always, I think, weirdly shocked that... 
you know, whenever people show the Daikon opening, the, you know, Darth Vader and the Justice League and all these other characters pop up alongside Godzilla and King Ghidorah and that weird six-eyed alien cat from Ogon Bot that I always forget the name of. Um, the, the, there is this sort of conversations between cultures and these sort of screens that we look at each other's media through. Yeah, we are very narcissistic beings. We are very childish in, in that way. As a child, we sort of grow up and we think that the world around us is created for us. It's all for us. We are the prince, the princess uh, in the middle of this world. And then we grow up and we realize that that's not uh, the truth, but that still remains with us. The, the fact that we are the center of, of, of our, uh, our story. And you find that everywhere. It's, it's, you know, China, Chugoku, the, the Chinese characters that are used in the country's name, the central country. It begins with the South and it expands to the nation state as that country being the center uh, of the world. And that's even more so when, when you have the economic power or the clout that's, that's uh, uh, behind that. And that very much is, uh, I think it, it plays to a, a lot of, um, of what we're, uh, we're discussing here. I did have a, a question for, for, for Tim, bringing things back to the, uh, uh, the, the book discussion and uh, anime magazines. I noticed that, um, uh, Tim, on, on your, uh, your site, you, you have a lot of images that, uh, um, uh, I mean, technical images of, of Mecca and of uh, you know, different ships from uh, Star Blazers, etc. You must have sourced them from anime magazines themselves. Uh, I wanted to ask you, where do you uh, source your material for that you use on the website for particularly for Mecca? Well, uh, I've got a very large book collection, of course. Um, Any time I found a Yamato book, I snapped it right up. And uh, over time, I built up what is a pretty big library of uh, maybe a couple hundred or more. And um, there was a point where I was working for uh, Voyager Entertainment to create the DVD series uh, for Star Blazers, moving it from VHS to DVD. And because it had been around for such a long time, I wanted to give it some added value. And so when I created extra features for it, uh, I poured through all of the uh, the best sources to uh, scan and clean up that artwork um, and create art galleries that uh, had never been published in English before. Um, and so that's one source, printed books. There's a lot of stuff online. Um, every month I publish a report on what's happening in the Yamato world. And part of that involves collecting uh, the fan art that I see online and turning it into a gallery, fully credited, of course. I want all of those artists to to uh, get the benefit of, uh, of their work. Um, and so between online and print sources, I have access to just about anything. Um, but of course, that's, uh, that library is constantly growing. So if, it's a big job to keep in, on top of it. Um, stepping backward for a second, I would like to recommend that in addition to uh, our Leiji Matsumoto book, everybody, please avail yourself of another book called Pure Invention by Matt Alt. It's a, a very eye-opening history about pop culture in Japan and how it influenced the world in ways that uh, you don't even guess at until you read how Matt uh, lays out a topic 
he'll pick something like karaoke uh, and give you the entire history of it and or, or social media. Many of the things that we now take for granted originated in Japan without us even knowing it. And uh, Matt does an amazing job of capturing it all in print. So Pure Invention by Matt Alt. If you're an anime fan, you absolutely must read that book. You'll enjoy every minute of it. I actually, I had it on my birthday list. A friend got it for my birthday, and I I read it in, one, like, basically one or two sittings. It is a wonderful book, and if you know me in person, and we are both anime fans, you know I've probably said, have you read Pure Invention yet? Have you? You have to. I'll let you borrow my copy. Um, it is a wonderful yeah. book. And uh, one of the things you take away from that book is the uh, the fact that uh, Japan's youth has always been a culture of early adopters, uh, going all the way back to the 60s. Um, the post-war generation uh, had a new world to live in. Their world had literally been rebuilt from the ground up. And so uh, newness was very desirable. And so uh, when a new American film arrived in Japan, everybody went to see it. And that led to... Uh, a huge American footprint in terms of pop culture, which they then adopted and uh, synthesized and uh, reinterpreted using uh, their own viewpoint and their own uh, psychology into whole new things. Um, so whereas it's true you can scan a lot of anime from the 70s and 80s and find American influences in it, uh, they're very quick to turn that around, and now we are using influences that we've seen uh, originate on their side. And so it's a constant uh, cultural conversation that goes back and forth across the ocean. Uh, it's very rich, it's very invigorating, and it can lead to a lifetime of study. Yeah, Matt Alt's uh, uh, work is is uh, uh, amazing. Um, we had I had him um, speak at. Um, the uh, the first Macadamia uh, conference uh, that we held in in uh, in Japan, and um, he is just a vast source of knowledge on on uh, cultural aspects uh, uh, of of Japan. He he also has a program on an NHK uh, 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 Japanology Plus, um, and uh, uh, he he has a lot of uh, material out there. Pure invention. That's. Uh, one that I'll have to add to my list for sure. You know, Leiji Matsumoto was born over 80 years ago, and we are still, I do not think, I, even if you are someone who has never even heard of his work, but you're an anime fan, you have been exposed to the ripples that have sort of come out of all of the things he's done. I don't, I can't think of, 
you know, many series that do not either reference him directly or kind of owe something to his work. So where do you think Matsumoto going to, I mean, he's still with us, but where do you see his work going in the future? Where do you see his legacy, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, after he's gone, where do you see it going from there? Well, that transition has already begun uh, on the manga side because within the last five years, uh, for the first time, other artists have begun to interpret his characters directly under his supervision. There have been Harlock manga and Galaxy Express manga and Gun Frontier manga, all written and drawn by new artists. Uh, and he's essentially passing the baton that way. He doesn't draw nearly as much as he used to. And when he does, uh, his style it has uh, evolved even further into this uh, sort of Picasso-esque uh, realm of lines that don't connect and uh, figures that don't look the same that they, as they used to. And so uh, I think as he becomes more and more advanced in years his uh, the appeal of his art becomes more and more narrow but the interpretations of his art are becoming more and more exciting uh just like it did when he uh created the foundation for anime uh that foundation has now moved into manga and is being interpreted in new and interesting ways that can still be directly traced back to him um there's an entire genera generation of artists that he inspired who have become anime and manga professionals. And you can see echoes of his work in their work. Uh, they're very happy to, uh, to proclaim uh, where they got their inspiration and demonstrate how it affects their work and, and uh, how they interpret it in different and unique ways. Um, I don't know that we're going to see any more Matsumoto anime because it's been a while since something new came out. And um, in recent years, especially within the last decade, he's attempted to launch several anime projects that uh, were not picked up for one reason or another. So if we see new Matsumoto anime, it's probably going to be in the form of a, uh, a loving, loyal adaptation of something older. Uh, there's there's a giant uh, vault of stories that have never been adapted that way, and and that could happen. The same way Osama Tezuka stories occasionally pop up in a new animated form. Uh, and we're certainly still seeing Cyborg 009 anime uh, year after year. And so this is not beyond the realm of possibility. It's it's a, uh, there's definitely a precedent for it. Um, I think that. Um, the biggest obstacle for American readers is that so little of his manga has been translated. Um, we've gotten the major stuff, Yamato, Harlock, and Galaxy Express, but there's so much more beyond that that we haven't seen uh, that we really need to, to appreciate uh, the depth of, of what he's created over his lifetime. Uh, there is so much that uh, I think it could go on for decades before we run out. Yeah, yeah, he's um, uh, really a um, kind of a legendary figure, like uh, Osamu Tezuka, in, in in that way as 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 one of the um, 
the uh, the anime greats uh, in in uh, in Japan, um, and that's the position legacy that that uh, he'll maintain uh, down the road. Um, like uh, Tim said, you know, there's uh, repeated iterations of of his work that is is. Uh, uh, coming out, and that's one thing that I actually wanted to ask Tim while we have the opportunity is, is uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the um, uh, what um, uh, Space Odyssey, uh, Space Battleship Yamato uh, uh, 2199 and, and uh, Space Battleship Yamato uh, 2202? Mm -hmm. were... Well, of course, uh, I love them both mm -hmm. to, uh, to the, the marrow of my bones. Those are amazing. Uh, I love the original and I love the remakes for different reasons. Um, they were done by people who grew up on the original. And so they're very fiercely loyal to, uh, to the spirit. Um, however, there's a, there's a whole nother topic that could fill a book of its own about Matsumoto's relationship to Yamato and how it evolved over the, um, there was a, an attempt in the late nineties for him to take control of the, of the property, which was met with a lot of resistance because it had been divided up in uh, between several different licensors by that time. And so ultimately he lost that bid. And, um, as a result of that legal, uh, conflict, a lot of his specific contributions to the original Yamato were either filtered out or redesigned in the remakes. Um, but it's undeniable that his influence is still there. It's built into the DNA. You can't remove it. Um, but it was compromised by the, uh, the directive that they could not uh, put anything into the remake that could be considered actionable, uh, that would reignite one lawsuit or another. It took them so many years to uh, to get everybody to nod their heads in unison and allow it to be made that the last thing they wanted to do was endanger that goodwill. And so that's where it stands. Uh, for some people, that's a deal breaker. They cannot uh, look at a Yamato that didn't involve Matsumoto, and I understand that. But it has so much more to offer. I think it's it's myopic to stop there. Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I should say that the last time that uh, Tim and I actually met was at uh, a viewing of uh, um, uh, it was a space battleship Yamato two uh, one nine nine. I think it was the last uh, uh, four um, episodes at a movie theater. I mean, it's been seven years now, but uh, yeah. yeah, it was a it was a pleasure to be able to uh, uh, attend a viewing with you uh, uh, at that time. That would have been the August of 2013. Uh, the finale of 2199 left the theaters just as the CG Captain Harlock movie was about to open. And so I timed a, a week in Japan to see both. That's, yeah, that's great. Um, I guess it's it's kind of tough during these pandemic times. Um, I did want to ask, how often do you get to Japan? Is it usually a once in a year uh, um, Visit or well, I like to go once a year. I usually tie it into some Yamato event, and then find other things to do while I'm there. Uh, but of course, it's been a little while since we've had a Yamato event. The last one was 
a concert that took place in October of 2019. So I definitely went to that. And that was a great trip. It was actually the second time I, I had gone that year. Uh, but of course, shortly after that, travel was restricted and it still is to, to, right now, uh, to my knowledge. Um, but the next series is set to begin sometime this year. It's going to be called Yamato 2205. Right. They have not announced a release date yet, but I'm really hoping that when they do, it'll land inside a, a window where we can travel again. Yeah. And so I definitely would like to be there for it. Yeah, continues. It it it, it keeps moving forward. Um, uh, you know, just as we were discussing the these constant ripple effects and and the the, the reiterations of of his stories. Uh, Twenty two oh five is is on the horizon now. From from what I've seen, is is that uh, going to be uh, a movie or is it going to be an anime series? Have you heard anything about that at all? That particular factoid is still maddeningly vague. Um, I am still calling it a series because when they refer to the writer, they give him the credit of series writer. Okay. If it was a feature film, I think they would have told us by now uh, because it's been in production for well over a year. And so, you know, the time has passed for them to, to quit being vague and let us know exactly what they're doing. Um, I expect it's going to be another series because they've done really well with that production model. And so I think they would be foolish not to go that way, but we'll see. Things change. It's quite obvious that, that, uh, that love continues that, yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not, uh, we don't want to let it go. You know, that, 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 uh, the, the, stories the the uh, the the world that that's uh, that's that's out there is so much a part of us and um it's it's uh for so many people you know going to a theater and watching the uh the episodes to get uh together with others is is an amazing thing you know it's 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 a mostly uh uh predominantly men in their uh, late 30s 40s uh and early 50s uh, in 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 Japan you look around and you see people of your own generation uh who are around there that the story is so so meaningful to to uh to so many people it's it's uh it's great to be able to see that and and uh and enjoy that and and uh, remember and reminisce on on your own childhood and how influential the the stories were for uh to yourself so. yeah people our age are still the core audience even after all this time yeah yeah that being said, uh, it's very important to to uh, to mention that uh, I know that we're kind of wrapping things up here, but there's so much more to the the, the book that, that we haven't mentioned. Um, you know, the uh, cosplay stories from uh, Onidine uh, Montoya and Matthew Montoya. Uh, I think also uh, Jonathan Tarbox's uh, discussion on the role of the cockpit is uh is a fascinating look at uh you know leiji matsumoto and his the connection with his father who was uh uh who was in the 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 japanese military and and the influences on him and also stephanie thomas's work of the the female within the stories of leiji matsumoto and matsumoto's uh, world in, in my chapter i i uh i i also interview uh, mariko tani uh, who has uh in the 1990s has has looked at the role of women in in science fiction uh in japan and it's really a very interesting 
in very important perspective uh, to see that role of of, uh, uh, of the dynamic between male and female within Meiji Matsumoto's story. So, I mean, there's so much more to to, to discuss. It's uh, uh, I, I I think in, in the future with the podcast, if you're going to be uh, uh, talking to Helen and, and Darren, uh, there'll be a lot more to discuss, I believe. Right. So far, we have Helen and Darren and Stephanie. And hopefully, Zach, we have a lot of people. We have most, I think, of the contributors. Uh, they will be taking some time out to do interviews like that with us, too. So hopefully, with everybody on board, we will get people to buy the book. We will have, I will make sure there are links to uh, purchasing the book and links to Tim and Ed's sites where you can find their research and information and their work. And I will also make sure that we have links to all of the Matsumoto stuff that is currently available legally in English so you can buy the manga collections from Seven Seas. I know that uh, several versions of Matsumoto's anime are on Tubi, which is actually a free legal service to watch a lot of old like shows. If you're like me, you love things that are free <laughs> because I'm a grad student and very cheap. So we'll make sure that you have links to places you can watch Matsumoto anime, even if you feel like you can't afford the sets, but we'll have a link to the right stuff uh, site where they have the discotheque sets, which are really, really nice. I have a friend who has some of those and they are really well put together. So you will not be wanting for Leiji Matsumoto if you keep listening to us for a while. <laughs> yeah, if I could, I'd like to throw in a couple plugs uh, at the end here. Sure, go ahead. Uh, first is the the site that we that has come up already a couple of times, Cosmo DNA. The URL is OurStarBlazers.com, and it's the largest website in the world devoted to Star Blazers and Space Battleship Yamato. I update it on the 15th of every month, and uh, there are tons and tons of Leiji Matsumoto interviews in there, and um, I explore just about every aspect of that franchise you can imagine. Uh, my other website is TimEldred.com. The name is Art Vault, and it's a it's an archival site that covers my entire artistic career, uh, going all the way back to when I was 12 years old and had just seen Star Wars and the Shogun Warriors for the first time, and how they uh, set the path of my life. And uh, there's an anime section in there as well. Uh, my next update is coming on April 1st, and it's going to include a complete rundown of all of the Leiji Matsumoto books in my library, which are something between 80 and 90 different titles. Yeah, the images of your, your library is uh, is amazing. It's virtually a wall of of, uh, of, of art books. It uh, looks like you have a lot of uh, great material there. Yeah, um, well, uh, I like to head to work in an inspirational art space and uh, one of the most inspirational moments of my life was the first time I stepped into a Mandarin. And so from that moment on, I thought, I want my office to look like this. For myself, I don't have an, as extensive an online presence as, as uh, Tim, for sure. But uh, uh, you can get in touch with me through uh, uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle is Morphology. Uh, with the first O being a zero, and uh, my webpage, which is uh, pretty much a, it's a it's a CV, uh, uh, www.edmundhoff.com, E-D-M-U-N-D-H-O-F-F.com. 
All right. Well, I want to thank both Ed and Tim for being on with us. And like I said, we will have more interviews coming up. But thank you both. Uh, the book is wonderful. I finished it a few weeks ago, and I'm really excited to see what people think about it when more and more people get their hands on it. I just want to thank Tim and Ed for being on the podcast again, and if you want to reach out to them or see any more of their work, we will have their links to social media in the show notes. If you want to find out more about us, you can follow us on Twitter at T-I underscore anime, or on our website, thirdimpactanime.com. Uh, we also have a Patreon, and you can find a link to that on our website, and if you really enjoyed what we did here today, you can leave us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Again, the book that we've been talking about is Leiji Matsumoto, essays on the manga and anime legend, edited by Helen McCarthy and Darren John Ashmore, and we will be having an interview with Helen and Darren in the near future. Thanks again for listening, guys. Thank you.